Sunday of Advent, the season in which we prepare for Christmas. And we have been looking at the book of Ruth, this small Old Testament book that you'll find nestled between Judges and Samuel. And you may ask the question, what does a story that happened over a thousand years before the birth of Jesus have to do with Christmas? Uh, and hopefully, as we've gone through this book, if you've been with us, uh, that, that answer has been hinted at here and there. Uh, but I hope today that, uh, that it becomes abundantly clear what Ruth has to do with Jesus. Uh, so we're going to be in Ruth chapter 4 today. Some of the, the themes that we have seen as we've gone through the book, two really uh, rise to the surface. One, that even in the midst of hopeless situations, God is at work. Uh, we see that because the book starts, uh, we might say, in, in black and white, uh, in, in dark gray, uh, monochrome tones. Things do not look good. And yet we see through the story, as the story goes along, that God is indeed up to something. That something is happening. God is bringing his plans to bear. And he's using Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And then another theme that we've seen here in this book is the theme of kindness. It's the word, the Hebrew word hesed. Uh, it's when used of God, we say steadfast love. And what we see in the book of Ruth is that Ruth and Boaz, they are examples of God's kindness. Uh, Ruth shows kindness to her mother-in-law, Naomi, by going back home with her, even when she had nothing to offer, to, to going and taking care of her. Ruth shows kindness. And Boaz also is an example of God's kindness. He shows kindness to Ruth uh, by taking care of her and by taking care of Naomi. Uh, but last we left Ruth and Naomi, uh, they were waiting on Boaz to act at the end of chapter 3. Ruth has asked Boaz to redeem them, a process that we'll talk more about in just a minute. Um, but Boaz did not have the first right to do that. There was another family member who was closer than him. Uh, and so chapter 3 leaves us with something of a cliffhanger. What will happen to Ruth and Naomi? What will Boaz be able to do? And we're going to see uh, those themes of kindness uh, and God's silent working um, Bring us to the end of the story today. Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you won't, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, okay, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He will be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, because your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is God's word, and like him, it is good and true and infallible. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Our gracious God, would you open your word up, not simply to our eyes and ears, but to our hearts I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's the uh, what's the best part of Christmas? Okay, that was such a church answer. Let me ask the little kids, what's the what, what are you most looking forward to on Christmas Day? Presents, right? Right. Now, if you're not in our house, you might already have presents underneath your tree. We, for some reason, wait until Christmas Eve, probably because we don't trust the people who have to open those presents. So, right, but, but right, you see, the, you see the boxes, you see them wrapped. There's a sense of anticipation and building. And then, of course, Christmas Day comes and you have to unwrap them. And if you have very clever parents, they might use multiple boxes and duct tape and lots of wrapping paper to build the anticipation or the frustration. Um, but either way, right, presents. We love gifts, and we love the anticipation that comes with unwrapping those gifts. Well, this, 
This morning, we have something of a gift to unwrap in Ruth chapter 4. There's lots of, of layers to what's going on here. But the key word in this chapter is that word redeemer. Uh, now, we're going to need to unpack what it is that's going on here. What, what does that mean? You know, that's, a, that's a Bible word. It's certainly a church word. But you may, uh, you may not have a clue. What does that mean? What is a redeemer? What does it mean to redeem something? So that's what we're going to talk about today. First, we're going to look at the need for redemption. Then we're going to talk about the cost of redemption. And then we'll finish with the hope of redemption. First, the need of redemption. Uh, maybe you've had the experience of, of being in debt uh, and a family member or a friend having to come along and, and pay your way out of it. Uh, maybe you've been in a tight spot before and you needed help. Uh, maybe it was the church or a group of people from your church or family. But either way, you were in a situation, uh, a tight spot, maybe your fault, maybe someone else's, but you could not get yourself out. You could not help yourself. And so you needed someone else to come along and help you. And if you've experienced that, then you have uh, what is the essence of a redeemer. Um, to understand what's happening here, let's understand some things about Israelite culture in the Old Testament. Uh, if you're an Israelite, there are two things that you want to preserve. Your family line and your family land. Now, I grew up in the suburbs uh, of Birmingham, so this idea of family land was new to me uh, when I moved to Chilton County. Uh, and, you know, and came to experience multiple generations living together on the same land. Uh, that idea is not nearly as foreign to the Bible as it was to me. Uh, but in ancient Israel, uh, God, when he gives the promised land to his people, he gives them each a place. And that is your place. Uh, that was your place given you by God. And so to lose it, in a sense, would be to lose some aspect of the promise. Along with that, you have your family line. God loves people, and God loves his people. And so if uh, a man does not have any male heirs and the family line were to go extinct, right, his name would no longer uh, be present among his people, that was something of a catastrophe. Uh, you lost your name and you lost your place. And so the law actually put some provisions in there to protect your family line and your family land. We might call it something of an insurance policy. And it's the role of the redeemer. Uh, your translation may say kinsman redeemer. But this would be a family member who, if you were in jeopardy, would come along and help out. So if your uh, family land, for instance, let's say that you had gone into debt and you had to sell yourself into slavery... It would be your redeemer, one of your close family members or someone in your extended family who would come along and would buy you out of that. They would redeem you. There are also laws protecting against the extinction of a family line, right? If so, again, if a man does not have any male heirs or if a man dies before he can have any children, then the role of the redeemer, I know this sounds really strange to us, is to have children by that man's wife so that his line does not go extinct. Now, again, that sounds really strange to us. We don't do that now. But in Israel, it was a way of making sure that a person's family would not go extinct, that the family line would continue, and that was a sacred thing. Well, here in this situation, we have both of those. 
You may remember, if you've been with us, that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died at the beginning. And that wouldn't have been as big a deal because Elimelech had two sons, except both of them died. And so now Naomi, as the widow, really has no claim on Elimelech's family land. As soon as she dies, then Elimelech's family is gone and his place is gone. And so what they most desperately need is a redeemer, someone in their extended family to come along to take care of the land and also provide an heir for Elimelech. Okay, and that's what Boaz is proposing to do. But the wrinkle is there's a family member who's closer. Someone else has what we call the the first right of refusal. It's his job. It's his role to redeem them first. And so um, Boaz goes to the city gates where business is conducted, where the leaders of the city meet to uh, see if he can redeem Ruth and Naomi and and Elimelech's family. Uh, But what I want you to see first is and it may be hard for us to grasp this, this is a truly dire situation. Um, Naomi and Ruth have lost everything. They are, they are in a place where they cannot help themselves. They need a redeemer. It's interesting, of all the things that we think about uh, sentimentally when we think about Christmas, we often don't think about the need that makes Christmas necessary. We like the fact that God would become a man. We like the fact that God would take on flesh and become one of us and be part of our experience. But we often forget the fact of why he had to do that. We were watching a a Christmas special last night, and they finished it with joy to the world. Uh, And if you've been around Grace long enough, this is something of a soapbox for me. They left out what I consider to be the most important verse of joy to the world. Uh, It's the third verse. And we sing it here when we sing Joy to the World. And it says this, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. Christ came to redeem us from our own curse. We cannot leave that out. We cannot forget the desperate need of Christmas. The reason that a redeemer had to come in the first place is because we are in a desperate situation and we desperately need his help. We need a redeemer. And let's not forget about that. But then, that sounds good, right? We, we need a redeemer, but redemption comes at a cost. Redemption is costly. In fact, that's why we see this other redeemer change his mind. Right, uh, Boaz and this kinsman, they enter into something of a negotiation, right? Uh, Boaz gets to the city gate, and it just so happens, as things just so happen in the story of Ruth, it's almost as if somebody's, you know, planning all this out, um, that Boaz's cousin, we'll call him, uh, comes along, and he calls him over and tells him to sit down, and then he, he calls a council of the elders, ten of them, to sit down so that they can conduct this negotiation, and Boaz uh, tells him about Elimelech and about Naomi, which this man would, of course, know. Uh, tells him about the land and that Naomi is, uh, is giving up her possession of it and says, hey, just let me know. And Boaz, acting almost very disinterested here, he's a smart negotiator. He says, hey, just, just let me know if you want to redeem it, because if not, okay, I just you come first and then I come after you. And so 
the man says, yeah, I'll redeem it. Because it's a win-win for him, right? If he redeems the land and he knows that Elimelech, Elimelech is dead and he has no male sons. So that means there's no one to claim the land, right? In, in, uh, in Israelite law, if there was a male heir who owned the land, that land would revert to him. He would get to keep it. Well, this guy knows that there are, there are no male descendants. So basically, for a, for a small layout of some money, he gets land that he gets to use forever, and now it will belong to him and to his inheritance, right? So this is a, this is a win-win. This is a smart business deal for him. So he says, yeah, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz says, okay, you should know that when you redeem it, there's a widow that comes with it, and her name is Ruth. And you also redeem her because you must perpetuate the name of the dead on his inheritance, right? There's that, there's that name, that family line thing. The role of the redeemer was to make sure that the family line did not stop. Now what does the man say? Nope, never mind. He says, I cannot redeem it. For why? Because why? I will impair my own inheritance. Now he realizes, oh, wait a second. I'm going to get that land, and I'm going to have to support these two widows and whatever children they may have. And then at the end of that time, when that boy grows up, he gets the land back. And he might also have a claim on my inheritance. And so the, the cost of redemption is too high for this man, and he says no. Now, I want you to also think about the fact that it's, that it's a high price for Boaz as well. Um, because Boaz, uh, we believe, is not married, does not have children. He's an older man. Uh, Ruth, if he redeems Ruth, Ruth may not have any children. Ruth has been married before. She was married for 10 years and had no children. That's a long time in that day and, in that day and age. And so it's highly possible that she may not be able to have children. And so Boaz could redeem Ruth and they not have any, any heirs to follow. Or... If, Bo, if Ruth only has one child, a son, then the land becomes his. And if Boaz has no other children, then Boaz loses his place and his name, and it becomes Elimelech. Now, that may sound really complicated, but basically, Boaz has everything to lose in this scenario. Boaz might lose his name and his place in redeeming Ruth. Right? So that's the, that's the jeopardy here. But what does Boaz do? He accepts the cost, and he redeems Ruth, and he redeems Elimelech's land. And so the cost is great, but the reward is greater. Boaz puts himself on the line to rescue someone else, and he does it willingly. And I want you to notice something, that in a chapter full of names, this other man has no name. All right, in verse 1, when Boaz calls him over... He says, come here, friend. Now, the word there in Hebrew is not friend. It's, a, it's actually a phrase. Uh, we might, we, you, could, you could translate it literally Mr. So-and-so. The man is anonymous. Now, Boaz knew exactly who he was, right? Bethlehem's a small town, and these guys are cousins, right? If, if this were Clanton, this guy's a Mims, a Baker, or a Kleckler, right? Like, he's, he is known, Okay? And Boaz probably used his name, but the narrator leaves him anonymous. He's just so-and-so. Why? 
because he does not accept the risk. He refuses to act nobly. He refuses to fulfill his obligation to his family. And as a result, the very thing that he was worried most about, losing his name and his place, happens. He is forgotten. He refuses to show kindness. And we don't even know who he is. And Boaz, who shows the Lord's kindness to this young widow, what does he receive? He receives a a part in the grand story. Not, Not only is he able to help this family, but his name is remembered forever. In fact, Uh, Years from now, when the first temple is built, one of the pillars in the temple will be named Boaz. Boaz accepts the risk of redemption and is remembered forever as a result. Risk Risk is right for the sake of the gospel. It makes me think of what Paul tells the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. How? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Boaz is just pointing us to a greater redeemer. One who would not only take the risk, a financial risk, but in fact would give away his very own life. Just like Boaz, Jesus willingly pays the price, the high price of our redemption. Not with money, not with land, but with his own life. Redemption is always costly. Redemption is not free, at least not to the person who pays the price. But it is always right. So there's the cost of redemption. Now, what is the hope of redemption? What is, what is this redemption for? What does it accomplish? First, I want you to see that redemption brings life out of death. Look at verse 10. As Boaz is presenting his case or explaining what he's done before the elders and before the witnesses, he says... I have bought, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought, don't think bought in terms of like buying a slave, but acquired. Um, She comes with Elimelech's property. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. So the danger... From chapter 1 is that Elimelech's family would be forgotten forever. And right here, right, right here, Boaz brings life out of that death. He says that's not going to happen. Elimelech won't be forgotten. He will have an heir. But there's more. 
Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So think about how shocking this would have been to the first people who heard it. Ruth is an outsider from a despised nation, Moab. But here in redemption, she's brought into the people of God. She's made one of the people. And not only is she made one of the people, she's given a name with the great women of Israel. She, her, her name is put alongside their names as one of the mothers of Israel, one of the moms who built God's people. Right? She's, given, uh, she's, she's brought from nothing to everything. But there's more. Not only does redemption bring life out of death, but it also brings fullness out of emptiness. Naomi is the first person we meet in the book of Ruth. Uh, and she's actually the last person to leave the stage. So we might say that while she's not the hero of this story, this is certainly her story. This book is primarily about what happens to Naomi. Now, do you remember what Naomi said when she returned home after losing her husband and her two sons in the land of famine? When she came back after a decade to her hometown of Bethlehem and the women said back in chapter 1, verse 19, is this Naomi? And how did Naomi answer them? Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. I'm on, uh, the, the Lord's hand is against me, right? The Lord has, I, I went away full, verse 21. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like the Lord has dealt bitterly with you. That you went away full and he's brought you back empty. That was how Naomi felt. But now look in chapter 4. What is said. Not by her but about her. Chapter four, fourteen. Boaz marries Ruth. The Lord gives conception. Provides a child. A boy. And the women say to Naomi. Blessed be the Lord. Who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He will be to you a restorer of life. And a nourisher of your old age. And check this out. Because of your daughter-in-law. In a culture that prized men. And male descendants. The women of the city that. The women of the, the city say that Ruth is better to Naomi than seven sons because she has shown kindness. She has gladly given her firstborn to her mother-in-law. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old, old age. Indeed, the Lord did bring Naomi back empty, but he brought her back empty so that he could fill her up. God brings fullness out of emptiness, this Naomi is no longer empty. And who is her redeemer? Who are they talking about? They're not talking about Boaz. 
They're talking about this baby boy. This little baby boy is her redeemer. He will restore her life. He'll take care of her in her old age. And what do they call him? Obed, which means servant. He will take the form of a servant. Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. As if that weren't enough hope, there's even more. And it's captured in the closing lines of the book, which on the face of it look really boring. We have this great story of intrigue and loss and redemption and romance, and it ends with a family tree. Why? What could be more dull after such a story than a list of names? What's so significant about this list of names? Well, I want you to remember that this story takes place in the time of the judges, when there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But who's on the horizon? Look there. They named him Obed, verse 17. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. There's a king on the horizon. The king is coming, David. And he will set things to right. But even more than that, even King David is not the end of the story. Now, let's let's trace the logic real quick. No Ruth, no Obed, no David. So Ruth, this Moabite foreigner from outside the people of Israel, she gets to play a part in the grand story of God's kingdom, King David. But even that's not the end of the story. In fact, our children just sang the truth of this. Flip over to Matthew chapter 1. It's a long list of names. And if you don't know any of the names, it's certainly a very boring list of names, you might think. But let's just see. Matthew 1, 6. Jesse... The father of David, the king. That's where Ruth leaves off. But the story keeps going. David fathered Solomon, the wife of Uriah. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asaph. Asaph fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. These are all kings, by the way. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amos, and Amos fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. It's going to get worse before it gets better, because the line of the kings ends right there. But Ruth's line does not end. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiad. Abiad fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. No Ruth, no Boaz, no Obed, no Jesse, no David, no Jesus. That God can take an incredibly hopeless and dire situation and be using it to bring about not just the redemption of one family, but the redemption of the world. The redemption of people from every tribe and tongue and nation on the planet. And why would he do such a thing? Because he loves you and for his own glory. And so this morning, I hope you see what Ruth has to do with Jesus. And I hope you see just how important maybe your suffering is in the light of God's redemptive plan. Ruth had no clue. Naomi had no clue. Right? To her, maybe it all seemed pointless and jagged and sharp and dark. But God was at work. And it would take generations. Fourteen generations, I think, to be exact. Before, at the right time, Jesus would come into the world. The fruit of Ruth and Boaz. And so may we anchor our hope in the God who does not waste time. He does not waste brokenness, but he brings salvation out of what can be very, very sad. And he brings us hope. He restores our hope. That's what he has done at Christmas. Let's pray. Our God and our King, thank you for the hope of Christmas. Thank you for taking what looks to us like Dead ends and U-turns, confusion, dismay, and reminding us that you're at work. You are in the broken and dark places bringing about your purposes. That even when we are faithless, you are faithful. That you will accomplish your plan and purpose. And you restore hope to the world through our Savior, Jesus. I pray we would know our need, that you would, again, as we unwrap presents under the tree, of course, parents know the cost of those gifts, and that they are nothing compared to the cost, Lord Jesus, that you paid, to the price you paid to redeem us. I pray that we would remember our need, that we would remember the cost And that you would restore our hope. For those of us who are afraid and anxious because we seem to live in a day when there is no king. And everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Remind us that you, Lord Jesus, are king. And that you are bringing your kingdom. And that the old is passing away and that the new is coming. You are making all things new, and therefore we can be a people of hope. Not of fear, not of worry, but of hope. Would you reinvigorate our hope? Cause us to see again our great Savior. Lord, I pray that for us as a church, uh, that as we celebrate Christmas together this uh, coming week, 
that the hope of our Redeemer would be the, the burning fire uh, in our hearts. Lord, I pray uh, for our country. I pray for the church in America that we would be a good news people. That we would remember uh, that, that the gospel is an announcement of good news. That you have come to do what we ourselves could not do. That you have come to redeem us. Lord, would you help us to fulfill our part of this story, to share the good news of our redemption. I pray that would happen all across our nation, uh, in all true churches, this coming Christmas and in the coming year. That in a land divided uh, and often feeling hopeless, that we would once again offer the message of hope restored in Christ Lord, we also pray for our world as we close out the year, praying for the nations. Lord, we pray for the country of Vietnam. We thank you for our brothers and sisters there, a small church. We pray that she would become a great force for good, particularly in a nation that has suffered trauma and warfare. Lord, we do pray for an easing of uh, persecution against Christian minorities in Vietnam, uh, that you, Lord, would repeal unjust laws, but that even in the midst of persecution, our brothers and sisters would continue to be good news people. We pray the same for our brothers and sisters in Yemen. We pray, Lord, we, we thank you for the miracle of the Yemeni church, uh, that even uh, though vastly outnumbered, um, this church is growing rapidly. And Lord, we pray that where evil and suffering flourish, your grace would flourish all the more. Lord, uh, in a land torn by war, civil war, we pray uh, that Christians would be uh, those who can offer something better. uh, And that you, Lord Jesus, would be worshipped throughout the land of Yemen. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and give thanks to God.